here as well. And we hope you will stick around after services, let us get to know you, and you can get to know us just a bit better. Luke chapter 15. We have been walking through this chapter where the word, grace, does not appear. And yet each of these parables that Jesus tells puts on display the amazing grace of our God. And perhaps no parable is as well known or so captures the glory of the grace of God than this parable of the prodigal son. Even as I say the title, Prodigal Son, you probably already recognize the title. And so as we begin, let's read the text, get it in the forefront of our minds, and we will focus on these verses. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said, he, here is Jesus, and he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property uh, in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and Go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. and Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we have been seeing how you rejoice when lost sinners are found. And now we come to this well-known, this beloved uh, uh, story that Jesus told. Help us to overcome the challenge of familiarity by looking upon the story with fresh eyes. That we may clearly understand who you are, we pray. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. When (coughs) children go missing, it is a 
gut-wrenching experience. Parents will attempt to move heaven and earth to get a lost child back. Back in the day, it was uh, the back of a milk carton. We put photographs and brief uh, descriptions of children that had gone missing. Hollywood knows that uh, the deep emotion that is a tide that is tied to this gut wrenching experience can actually be leveraged into profit. And so movies like Taken and uh, Prisoners will seek to make a profit by uh, capturing in cinematic cinematic fashion a father's quest to find his lost child or lost children. Have you ever lost a child? Uh, it it actually happened to me once when I was when I was very young. I think I was younger even than my youngest is right now. We went to watch a baseball game. I can't remember. I was trying to get confirmation this morning if it was at Candlestick Park or the Coliseum. But I do know we went to go see the Oakland A's. Sorry to all the Giants fans here today, but uh, we were at the ballpark, and as far as I can remember, they were good seats. As a kid, what do I know, right? But at one point, my dad wanted to go to the concession stand, and so <coughs> we got up from our seats and went out to visit one of the concession stands. There were there was a gang of people there, a lot of people. Uh, lines had formed at the concession stand, so me, my dad, we get in line, and uh, we were standing there. <coughs> and I'm a kid, you know, kids looking around, you know, whatever. One second, my dad is standing next to me. The next second, my dad's not there. And that's the official beginning of Lost Nick, right? Because I don't know where my dad is. But I'm a big kid, right? I know where we're sitting. And so I go marching over and I go up. And then you got to go down uh, into the sections. And I get up to the top and I look down those steps. And I'm in the wrong place because I don't see my mom. I don't see my sister. And now, now I'm starting to panic, right? Because I'm, it, it, I realize I'm not as big as I thought I was. Meanwhile, my dad, who was standing in line, realizes I'm gone. And so he, he starts to go into panic mode, too. And he starts yelling out, Nick, Nick. By this time, I'm crying. I've walked back down into the, the group of people the crowd there by the concession stands, and a good Samaritan sees me crying, hears my dad yelling, puts two and two together, and says, he's over here. And my dad came over, picked me up, right? And what did the crowd do? Oh, right? I was lost. Then I was found. Jesus captures the emotion of losing a child in a, again, a familiar, well-known story, so familiar and well-known to us that it can be difficult to get over that hurdle of familiarity. Ah, we know this story. And, and we know the, the contours of it, the ins and the outs, and what happens, the resolution. But maybe, maybe it's best if we try to approach this with fresh eyes. And in fact, 
I don't know, maybe this is your first time here in church, or maybe you're watching online, and this is your first time experiencing God's Word. And so this may be a new thing for you. Let us devote all of our energy this morning to seeing clearly how Jesus, God the Son, presents to us God the Father. What is communicated here is that God is gracious to returning prodigals. Now, we're going to dig into that and what that means, but that's that's the overall contour of, of the story is how gracious is God? Every Israelite knew Exodus 34 and verse 6, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. But every Jewish person also knew about Sinai and the mountain shaking and the dark thick clouds and the lightning and the flashing and the thunder. The impressive, awe-inspiring presence and, and, and the terror of the presence of God. How do, we, how do we hold those together? And how do we square it with what Jesus is saying here? Let's dig into the narrative, shall we? We're introduced to a man who had two sons. We know, usually we know the first one. The second one, not so much. We'll circle back to him next week, and we'll talk about his, the rest of the story next week. But first, we notice a, a self-willed son. Because here, the, the younger of the two makes a request, and the request is more than a request. He says, uh, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. Normally that happens when dear old dad has died. And so the son's request is essentially saying to his father, I wish you were dead. He is not wanting to do his father's will anymore. He wants to do his own will. He's not content with staying and abiding in his father's house. And and there is selfishness in this. Give me what's coming to me, right? And the father is uh, exceedingly gracious, and he, he abides by that. He allows that to, to happen. He divides his property between the two sons. Uh, and in their day, since there were two sons, the property would have been split into thirds. Two-thirds would have gone to the older brother, and then the one-third would have gone to the younger. Also, you see selfishness in not many days later, verse 13, gathered all he had. It's mine. You can't have it, and I'm going to go spend it. And so uh, you see he's self-willed, he's selfish. This then leads to separation. He took a journey into the far country. And the truth about the far country, someone has put it into very succinct terms the far, the far country will teach you more than you want to know. It will take you further than you want to go. It will cost you more than you want to pay, and it will keep you longer than you want to stay. And the younger son is going to learn that the hard way. He goes and he squandered his property in reckless living. This is sensuality. This is where the prodigality comes in. He is the prodigal son. Uh, he then, in verse 14, he ends up spending everything, and, and then that's when the recession hit, right? And a severe famine came unto the land, and he began to be in need. You see, 
uh, all of this leads to destitution, uh, physical destitution, but also no doubt there's a spiritual destitution here as well because of where he's going to end up. But uh, he's in the prime place in verse 14 where he's lost everything. He's in the, in the, proper, the prime place for him to end up debasing himself in unspeakable ways, ways he never thought he would. And now, well, verse uh, 15, he does engage in self-abasement because he uh, hires himself out, joined himself, glued himself, is is, uh, literally what's communicated there, to one of the citizens of that country, and that guy sent him out to feed pigs. Now, the Jewish context for this is important. Jesus was a Jewish man. He's speaking to Jewish people who know the law, and they know Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 7, where it, the, the law communicates that pigs are unclean animals. And so those who would slop the hogs, as it were, that would be unclean work. And to end up uh, a Jewish person in the pig pen, that is an expression of that spiritual destitution and, and that self-abasement. It, it's, it's profound poverty that has led to this degradation of himself. And then he ends up with even deeper want because in verse 16, he longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. He's willing to eat pig slop. That's how deep he's gotten. My dad uh, used to tell us, you know, when we were younger, we would say, uh, Dad, we're hungry. And he would say, well, well uh, what do you want? You want this? You want that? No, no, no. He said, well, no, I'm going to come with stolo, which means when you're hungry, you'll eat anything, right? So you must not be hungry because you're not willing to eat anything, right? And so... That's what we see here. When you're hungry, you'll eat. And, and this is where he's at. He's so hungry, he'll even eat the pig slop. It's a, an account of, of, of the physical reality of this younger son. But of course, there's always a deeper meaning to what Jesus is communicating in stories. And the deeper spiritual overtones of this is that The same thing happens spiritually. That when you are spiritually starving to death, you'll eat anything. You'll feed yourself with with anything to try and fill this longing and and this want, this gap that's in you. And you'll consume whatever, whatever doctrine or whatever teaching that's out there in the world. And there's a lot of secular doctrines, a lot of worldly doctrines that, that they may sound like the truth, but the danger of the lie is that it's almost the truth. And so many people I- imbibe it and, and take it in, and, 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 and it's, it's pig slop is what it is. Only the pure word of God gives us everything we need for life and godliness. We need the pure milk, otherwise we do end up just eating the pig slop that has harmful additives, and it lacks nutrients, and and really, um, it's going to leave you hungry and starving all the more. So we see it's a a downward spiral. It's a downward staircase into the pig pen uh, and the pig pen of sin also. How do you get out of it? Well, that's verse 17 is the turning point, right? The turning point begins with a realization in verse 17 when he came to himself or your translation may say he came to his senses that's good too there's there's awakening uh and 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 certainly 
this is illustrative of spiritual awakening that takes place in lost sinners who look around and realize, I'm starving to death here, and there's a Father in heaven who loves me. Well, he came to himself, and that's when he has this uh, inner dialogue here. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? I perish here with hunger. And so notice the resolution in verse 18. I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, uh, you see, he's, he's making these, th- these decisions. Uh, and, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You hear in this uh, repentance as well. There's the acknowledgement of sin. And, and he's, his way of making restitution is to, well, I'm not, a, I'm not a son anymore. I'll be a servant. And that is all. Uh, reflected in this is, is contrition, is brokenheartedness. His spirit is broken. That's, that's a good starting point. It's not a bad thing. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. We don't want the worldly sorrow that leads to death. We want the, God, the godly sorrow and the, that leads to repentance. And so, uh, notice, it, it's one thing to say, I will do this, I will do that, I will, I will, I will. It's another thing to actually put that into practice and take that first step. And that's what verse 20 is. He arose. He got up. He's actually going to put all those resolutions he made into practice. And he arose and came to his father. Um, he, he didn't make all those resolutions and then do nothing about it, in other words. That happens sometimes, but not here. And, and again, the reality is we can, we can dream all the best dreams that we want. But if we don't put it into practice, what good is it? It, it, it profits us nothing. They amount to nothing. So verse 20, uh, he, he arises, goes to his father. But notice, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So, long way off, that seems to indicate the father was watching. But the father, he was waiting for his lost son to come home. And so when he saw, just on the horizon, just that, who is that? And maybe he begins to recognize the gate, the the, the walk. That looks like, can it be? And, And he felt compassion. He sees him. He felt compassion. He ran, which was very undignified for an older man to do, but he would have reached under, grabbed to the, the bottom of his robe and tucked it in, and then ran. And he, he runs, he, he, he embraces the son, and he kisses him. He's all over the bedraggled boy. He was waiting for his son to come home. And, and his son tries to explain the situation in verse 21, right? son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And we know the rest of the speech that he prepared was, make me as one of your servants. He can't even get it out. Because the father interrupts him. 
said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. There is a, a re-clothing that takes place here. Once the reconciliation has happened, and, and the, the robe, the clothes, that would be used to cover his nakedness. I mean, he didn't have anything, so there's no telling what kind of tatters he was wearing. But he puts the clothes on, the ring that symbolized family relationship, would have been the father's uh, signet ring, probably. And then the shoes, uh, well, in their day, slaves, servants, didn't wear shoes. And what's communicated here is that that slavery that you had, you were joined to that citizen of the faraway country, not anymore. You're no longer a slave, no longer a servant. And then bring the fatted calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. This is the, You connect this back to how all of heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents, right? In verse 7 and verse 10, joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so, verse 25, now his older son was, excuse me, verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and was found, and they began to celebrate. Um, what the older son is going to hear in verse 25 is music and dancing. Right? His father's in there dancing a jig, right? He's <laughs> Whatever. He's dancing. There's music, and he's, it's exciting. It's celebration. What Jesus does, he presents a radically different idea, a radically different concept of God in heaven to all of those sinners who were drawing near. We, we, we talked about them in verse 1, the tax collectors and the sinners. Very different. Again, ev every Jewish person knew about Mount Sinai. They, they knew the clouds, the thunder, the lightning, all of that. And yes, they would have known Exodus 34 and verse 6. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness. But they also knew verse 7 about keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the ch children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Here are these tax collectors and sinners, and they know they are guilty. How can God clear me of my guilt? How can he do it? What's missing in this story? You ever think, think about that? See a father, loving father, gracious father, who welcomes his son back into the house. How is it that God, th this how can he how can he forgive? How is it possible for him to forgive the uh, the transgression, the iniquity, the sin, all of it? The key is the one who's telling the story. Who's telling the story here? It's Jesus. It's God the Son who took on flesh and lived among us in order to, in order to reveal to us the Father. You've seen me, you've seen the Father, he says in John. Jesus is the means whereby God is able to clear the guilty, to justify the ungodly, 
and to forgive transgressions, iniquity, and sin. That's the gospel. That's why the Father can be so gracious to us sinners, is because of Jesus. Jesus is the means of the Father's kindness. That's why the Father can welcome us home and and put on the, the white, seamless garment of the righteousness of Christ. That's why He can kill the fatted calf and and bring us into his house. It's because there's not the older son who's outside and angry at grace, but it's because there's an older brother, the elder brother Christ, who came to be the prophet, the priest, and the king that we needed. It's because the elder brother lays down his life. You see, that's, that's where this story is ultimately going. The one who tells the story is the one who will lay down his life on the cross and shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins so that the God of heaven, God the Father, can forgive all of our sins, all of our transgressions, all of our trespasses, all of it gone through Christ Jesus. We also read this with Trinitarian lenses, don't we? We see God the Father, God the Son, the one who's telling the story, God the Holy Spirit, who Christ is is filled with, the Spirit of God, throughout his life. But we can't overlook, verse 17, when he came to himself. Uh, We mentioned it earlier in Bible class, that left to ourselves, we don't want the Father. Left to ourselves, we, we are driven by the flesh, and we always end up in the pig pen of sin. This is why we need the spiritual awakening that only the Spirit of God can bring. And to awaken us to the beauty and the glory of the gospel so that we have ears to hear and eyes to see all of the glory of the grace of God that's been manifest in Christ Jesus. Three things and then the lesson will be yours. What is God like? And and in particular, in this account, this parable that Jesus tells, We can talk about three things. Number one, God is a God who regrets when we rebel. It it brings God no joy when his wrath abides on the sinner. He takes no pleasure in the death of sinners. All of Scripture unites to affirm that God is heartbroken over our rebellion. But we also see here that while the Son, he leaves and goes to the far country, The Father does not go with him. And our Father in heaven is so holy and so pure, his eyes cannot look upon evil. He can have no fellowship with darkness whatsoever. And when we walk out the door, he doesn't go with us. And he allows us, he permits us to march off into rebellion, though it break his heart. But then, while he does regret when we rebel, He's also a God who runs when we repent. Will God run? Jesus answers in the affirmative, absolutely he will. The father was watching, he was waiting. And he comes and he loves on his son and he embraces and he kisses, he hugs. He comes running and Jesus is saying, this is the heavenly father. That he is a God who will run and he will embrace And he will clothe 
the returning sinner, the one who repents, the one who's absolutely crushed because of their sin. He will come running. And he's a God in the third place. He regrets when we rebel. He runs when we repent. And he also restores when we repent. Restores us back to our place as a son. This, my son, verse 24. He is, he's my son. He was dead, but he's alive again. There's, by the way, there's spirit, There's regeneration for you, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God in Christ made us alive. That's, that's the gospel. When we repent, we, our, our hearts, our minds, we change our hearts and minds. When we come back to the Father's house, he restores us. began to celebrate. There is celebration when sinners repent. And again, it is only because of Christ that that celebration is possible. I heard it recently likened unto this. Uh, I want you to envision, if you will, a vast ocean of water that is held back by a dam. Great big, massive, bigger than the Hoover Dam. The water of that trillion, billions of gallons of water held back by a dam. And, and your little village is at the, the foot of the mountain, at the foot of that, that dam. And, and you wake up one morning because you hear a loud crash, a loud, a loud cracking. It's as if uh, the, the heavens have been torn open. And you run outside your house and you look and the dam has burst. And, and that whole flood of that ocean of water is bearing down upon you. There's no time to flee. You can't get away. There's no bargaining. And in the same instant when you know that you're going to be swallowed up by that ocean, the ground opens up and swallows the whole, the whole ocean, every last drop of it. But not a drop hits the foot of your pants. And you're dry. Brothers and sisters, friends, that vast ocean of the wrath of God was bearing down on you because of sin. And you would be swallowed up by the infinite holy wrath of the Father, even. But the Son opened himself up and took every last drop of the cup of the wrath of God upon himself, drained it to the last drop, swallowed up all the wrath of God, and not one bit of it touches us. That's why the Father can look upon us with a, dip, a, a disposition of kindness and love and grace because of Jesus. Every last one of God's children left his house, went off to the far country, squandered our inheritance on reckless living sinners. 
And every last one of us deserves every last drop of the ocean of God's wrath for sin. But God, in Christ, covers us with the blood of Christ. All of the wrath turned aside because of what Christ did on the cross. And now we can come home and be received by our gracious Father. Let's pray about this. And can it be, Father, that you would be so gracious to sinners like us, to a sinner like me? We thank you that indeed you are this gracious. You have made it possible not just possible, that we actually have the real forgiveness of every last one of our sins. And we can find our place in your family when you welcome us back as sons and as daughters. Glory to the Father, Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and forever and to the day of eternity. Amen.